Well, you know, the coronation of, uh, of Prince Charles is just around the corner. So many of you know that uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England, she died last September, and immediately upon her death, Prince Charles became King Charles of England. And, uh, and so with all of that, there's going to be official, an official crowning of, of King Charles as king. There's going to be an official coronation. You probably didn't know this, but this is coming May 6th, uh, just around the corner, May of uh, 2023. And so they're going to do it at Westminster Abbey. This is going to be a huge event. It's going to be televised all over the world. And uh, they say that Prince Charles is going to wear the St. Edward crown. Now, normally for a coronation, they create a whole new crown for this, uh, but they're going to wear this historic St. Edward crown. So uh, the real question is, will Harry and Meghan Markle be attending a coronation? That's what everybody really wants to know. It doesn't really matter about the crown, but uh, for right now, it's a definite maybe for sure. So, uh, but, so there's going to be big parties. I was, I was reading about this online. There's going to be huge parties. There's going to be co- a concert. Um, there's going to be a huge lunch uh, throughout the country of England, uh, throughout Great Britain, uh, called the Coronation Big Lunch. And so the kings invited everybody to throw this huge feast and to take part in this celebration. Now, most notably, what's going to happen during the coronation is that the royal family is going to p- proceed from Buckingham Palace. They're going to end up at Westminster Abbey where the coronation will take place. And church, literally hundreds of thousands of people will fill the streets of London so that they can see their new king. King Charles, and they will be celebrating that and hailing him as the new king of England. And so what we're going to do this morning in Mark chapter 11 is we're going to look at a, at a story that really includes a huge celebration and, and, uh, and parade and in uh, many ways resembling that of King Charles's coronation. It's called Jesus' Triumphal Entry into Jerusalem. And so we've been in this series in the Gospel of Mark that we've been calling Servant King. And, and uh, one of the things that I've been highlighting for all of you is as we've kind of navigated this series, I, I've, I've really tried to show you along the way how in many instances the crowds, but, but most consistently the disciples, have misunderstood the kind of king Jesus is and would be. They're expecting him to be a political king. They're expecting him to expel the Romans from the country of Israel and reestablish uh, the glory of the, of the Israelite monarchy uh, in, in the land of Israel. But that was not the king that Jesus came to be. That's not what he came to do. And so what the triumphal entry does is it marks a huge turning point in the story because, because up to this point, Jesus has been pretty subtle about about revealing who he is but what Jesus does in this story is he very much reveals the kind of king that he is he's not a political king he's going to reveal himself as a servant king he's going to go all the way to the cross and he's going to do that for you and for me and so I think it's tempting for for those of us who've been in church a while we're familiar kind of with many of the Bible stories I, I think it's tempting for us to read the story of the triumphal entry and just kind of glance through it, kind of move through it pretty quickly, uh, missing its significance and relevance. But that would be a huge mistake. Because, because the story of this first Palm Sunday, the story of the triumphal entry has huge, huge relevance for our lives today. And so I want to highlight for, uh, to that, um, 
highlight that for us uh, today. So we're going to read Matt, chap, chapter 11 of Mark. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand just for the reading of God's word today. So Mark records this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So what Mark tells us is Jesus and the disciples, they had, they had hiked up this 17-mile treacherous journey, if you will, from, from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem. The Jericho Road was uh, a really an elevation change of about 2,500 feet over the course of 17 miles. So it was a very, very, uh, very demanding hike. And so the disciples, along with Jesus, are really on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they stop at the Mount of Olives. And uh, here's a picture of the Mount of Olives. This is the, the view that you have, uh, that you can see today. This is our, our group was there just a couple of weeks ago, and this is one of the pictures uh, that we took. And so this is a very popular um, <clears throat> tourist attraction, if you will, because it provides such an amazing view of the old city of Jerusalem. And so what you see is uh, the Golden Dome of the Rock, and that's the location where the Jewish temple used to be. So that is the most prized real estate in the world right there because it's important to Jews, Christians, and to Muslims. And so, so it's a beautiful view of the city. It's just about um, maybe a mile and a half uh, from the old city, old city of Jerusalem. Now, the reason why the Mount of Olives is so important is not because of the incredible view that it offers, and that it certainly does, the reason why it's important is because the prophet Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesy in their books that when the Messiah returns, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. That from a scriptural standpoint, the beginning of the end is going to begin on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives right from that location. And the Messiah will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll see the consummation of the kingdom of God from that very location. And, uh, and so what we have in this story, interestingly enough, is Jesus and the disciples stop in that very location and he begins to make preparations to reveal himself to the people of Israel as their king. 
And so hugely significant for us. And so what the triumphal entry really does is it paints a couple of pictures for us. It helps us to see a couple of things that are very important. And I think what we see in the triumphal entry is we see Jesus' action that reveals who he really is. And then we're going to see our reaction who reveals who we really are. So let's, let's talk about those two. Let's, let's, let's first look at Jesus' action and how it reveals who he really is. And so up to this point of the gospel, as I mentioned, Jesus has been pretty stealthy about revealing his identity, about uh, unveiling that and revealing himself uh, to the crowds especially. But here the story takes a huge turn and we see that Jesus is very deliberate. He's very intentional about everything he does. And the message that he sends is unmistakable here. And uh, let me just kind of show it to you. Look at, look at verse 2 of Mark 11. Uh, Mark records this. Jesus is telling the disciples, he says, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Then you say the Lord has need of it and uh, we'll send it back here immediately. Now church, just imagine if I go to Best Buy this afternoon and I pick up a 65-inch flat screen TV off the shelf and I begin, you know, I bypass the registers and I walk towards the front door and uh, the security guard stops me and asks me, well, what are you doing? And my response is, well, the Lord needs this flat screen TV. Um, you know, and I keep walking. What do you think their response is going to be? You think they're just going to wave me on through? Uh, no, they're going to call the police. That line is not going to work in Best Buy. It's not going to work anywhere else. But that line actually worked here. So why did that work in this situation? Well, I think the best explanation is Jesus prearranged this. I think Jesus spent a lot of time in the, in the villages surrounding Jerusalem, in this village uh, in particular, pretty close to, to Bethany, right outside. And I think he had a relationship with the owner of this cult, and I think he set everything up. And, uh, and so, um, you know, he had set all of this up so that the, uh, you know, the disciples could borrow this cult, you know, without, without any problem. It's, it is interesting because many of the Bible commentators on this passage will say, that Jesus really did this out of his omniscience, that he, that he did it out of his, you know, out of his deity, of, of him knowing all things. And so it really doesn't matter kind of which direction you go with this. It doesn't change the story at all, but it is, but it is kind of interesting kind of looking at it from the different perspectives. But I want you to notice a couple of details with this. Notice how Mark describes this. He says, he says um, you're going to find a cult on which no one has ever sat. Now, again, this is another example. As you're reading scripture, it's very tempting for us to dismiss details like this and think, you know, this is not that big of a deal. And we just kind of keep reading. But I want to tell you, church, that the writers of scripture don't just, you know, they don't just throw stuff in. You know, they don't just kind of create filler material. Um, but there's a, there's a reason why Jesus is using a call that had never been written before. And if you dig through the Old Testament, what you're going to find are three very specific examples in the Old Testament. One's in Deuteronomy, one's in 1 Samuel, uh, one's in another book that I can't really remember off the top of my head. But there are three very specific examples. Whenever an animal is pressed into service by a king, they're always going to choose you know, a mule, a donkey, a cow uh, 
that's never been written before, that's never been yoked before. Always. When a king needs an animal, that's the, that's the kind of animal they're going to choose. When the king needs a car, they're not going to get a used car, they're going to get a brand new one. And that's, that is part of this story. It's part of the unmistakable message that Jesus is sending here. And uh, I think people in the Old Testament, people in Jesus' day, would have understood uh, what's, what's happening as they, as they look back over the story. Now, look, let, let me show you another detail in verse 7. And so they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And then they lead him in this parade, in this procession, into the city of Jerusalem. It's a purebred, unbroken colt. And that's how Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Well, when you think about, when you think about Israeli history, I'm going to play a little Bible trivia with you here today, so you, you may not know this, but, but can you think of who was the king of Israel during Israel's glory days, during the height of their military and economic power? Who was the king at that time? It was Solomon, a- absolutely. Do you all know how Solomon was coronated as king of Israel? He was crowned king of Israel on a donkey. And, uh, and so the, the, the precedent, the symbolism here, again, is unmistakable. Let me show you the verse. This is 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 through 40. And so the writer of Kings says this, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. This is, this is what you're going to be hearing when, you know, King Charles was coronated, something very similar. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. So this is, this, is, this is the precedent here of Solomon, the greatest king, greatest earthly king, if you will, of Israel, being inaugurated, and uh, he's coming in basically on a donkey. And so again, what's happening here, what Jesus is doing, is very deliberate, very intentional. But let me show you one more. And uh, this, one, this one will absolutely, when you realize the significance of this, this will blow your mind. This is a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, Uh, chapter 9, verse 9, this prophecy was predicted 530 years before Jesus was born. 530 years. And notice how spot on this is. The writer uh, Zechariah predicts this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey now just think about this let that kind of sink in for a minute and so how is the messiah going to come to israel he's going to come riding on a colt and so every jew in that crowd when jesus is riding on the donkey they understood zechariah 9 9 they absolutely did they knew exactly um what was happening here and what Jesus was proclaiming. So how did the crowd really receive Jesus? Well, you look at this 
back in Mark chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, they, their reaction was this way. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And so, so the crowd is, is responding to King Jesus. And so they're, they're taking their outer cloaks off and they're throwing them on the ground. It, it's really their way of rolling out the red carpet. That's the message that's being sent. So like we would do it in Hollywood or for some diplomat or some dignitary, we would roll out the red carpet. This is kind of their way of rolling out the red carpet. It's their way of, of paying honor and respect and homage to, to their king. Now let's, let's just apply this to our lives for a minute. Let's just kind of think about uh, the implications of this. And, and um, you know, as we kind of think about what the crowd is doing, just as the crowd is throwing their cloaks off uh, and making a carpet for the royal procession. Church, you, you know what we need to be doing? We need to be responding to our king in, in the very same way. We need to be, just as they were laying down their cloaks, we need to be laying down our lives and, and really yielding our wills to the sovereignty of Jesus, our king. We, we, we need to be we need to let him rule and reign in our lives. Rule and reign in our hearts. See, that, that's the implication here. That's what Jesus was really after. That is, that is what God is after. That we would, church, that we would lay down our wills in absolute surrender to our king. This is what we were made for. This is what we were born for. And so... And so really the coming of Jesus marks the coming of the kingdom of God. We've seen that over and over in the gospel of Mark. That Jesus' arrival is the arrival of the kingdom of God. So then you ask, what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is ruling and reigning. It's wherever he's allowed to call the shots and to rule and reign. And so we even pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So the kingdom of God is wherever the will of God is being done. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is allowed to be king. And so the kingdom of God is God's plan for history. The kingdom of God is God's plan for your life, for my life. He wants to be king of our hearts. He wants to rule our hearts. And so allowing Jesus to rule and reign in our lives is the only appropriate response to Jesus, our great king. Now, how do we do that? Like, what, is, what does that look like very practically? What does that look like? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. I, I, I think, you know, when you think about how do I make Jesus king, of my heart, I think first and foremost, it means trusting God's care. Think very practically that way. It just means believing that God will guide me, that God will provide for me, that he will protect me, he will get me home. That's what it means. So when I let Jesus rule my heart, it means I believe he's got me and I'm in, I'm in his loving arms He's taking care of me. Now, let me just say it this way. I, I don't, 
you know, I don't know if you realize this, but I need to say it anyway. But your life is never going to be problem-free. It's never going to be problem-free, church. I-A-S is a reality of life. Do you know what I-A-S is? It's always something. I mean, can I get an amen to that? You guys know what I'm talking about? It is always something. It is, it is literally, if it's, not, if it's not one thing, it's another. You guys track it with me? You know what I'm saying? We just move from one problem to the next, to the next, to the next. It's always something. Your life is like an aircraft carrier. And on top of the platform of that aircraft carrier are these planes or problems. And just as you, just as, just as you get one sent off and off, you know, off on its way and you're done with that one, guess what? You got another plane coming in for a landing. Have you guys figured that out yet? And so many of the problems, you know, that we have are, are just, just problems that are really beyond our control. And really, life is just a series of problems that we navigate. And it's, it's literally moving from one problem to the next. And so, so much of our lives are really beyond our control. You think about probably the three biggest problems that you're facing right now. I don't know what they are, but I guarantee you, for the most part, they're beyond your control. Like Friday night, you know, fr everything that happened Friday night, that was beyond our control. There was very little that we could do about it. And, and so, and so yet, yeah, what, what are we constantly trying to do? We're, we're constantly trying to control something that's beyond our control. And what God wants us to do is trust him. And uh, when we try to control it, that's when the fear and the anxiety and the worry takes over and rules and reigns in Jesus' place. And so part of this is trusting that, that God's, God's going to work all things out for good, even though I may not see it. You know, um, trusting God's care means that, that he's going to work in such a way to bring glory through uh, those problems. Glory to himself. And, and so, and so that's, that's a part of why he allows us to go through problems is to bring us closer to himself. To build our faith and trust in him. And so is there an area right now? Just think about your life. Is there an area of your life right now where you're struggling to really trust God's care? Maybe you physical maybe it's financial maybe it's relational maybe it's marital and so trusting God's care means you believe that God is going to be glorified and he's going to use it for your good but there's a second part of what it means to let Jesus rule my heart and this is where I, I really not only trust God's care but I surrender to God's control I surrender to God's control and this is like when I get up in the morning and the purpose of my day, the purpose of my life is not to fulfill my plan, but to fulfill God's plan today, to bring glory to him. And, uh, and so it's where I yield myself to God's commands and, and God's, you know, God's control to my life. And so, and so yeah, I, I have plans but I take those plans and I put them under God's plan for me to that day. That's what it means to let Jesus rule and reign in my heart. And uh, another word for this is, like I've already mentioned, surrender, where I surrender to God's control. It's where I kind of wave that white flag 
and say, God, I'm, I'm trusting your care and I'm yielding and surrendering to your control. And uh, now we have a negative connotation with that sometimes because we think surrender and waving the white flag, we lose in that process, right? If you were to surrender, that means you lose, you're defeated. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. See, when we surrender, Jesus wins, but then he gives us the victory. And, and that victory is manifested in two very practical ways. His power comes to us. We experience the power of the Holy Spirit flowing into our lives because we've yielded to his control. We've committed ourselves to his plan. And so now his power is free to fill us and to change us from the inside and to empower us to live the Christian faith. And then when I surrender to God's control, the result is joy. Because all of a sudden the pressure's off me and I'm free to have the joy of his presence, the joy of his closeness with me. And so is there a part of your life that you haven't been willing to surrender? Is there a part of your life that you've kind of been just holding on for yourself so that you can try to save yourself? That's where the exhaustion comes. That's where the fear and anxiety comes. when We're trying to be God and we're not letting God be God. Now, so that's how you, you know, you let Jesus rule your life. But why would you make Jesus the king of your life? Like, why would you do that? I've already kind of talked a little bit about this, but, but I think Zechariah 9.9 gives us, gives us some reasons for this. I, I think the reason why you would let Jesus be the king of your heart is because of the kind of king that he is. He doesn't just reveal that he's king. What he does in the triumphal entry is reveal to us the kind of king that he is. And what Jesus does in his entry into Jerusalem is reveal himself as a, number one, righteous king. A righteous king. Let me show you Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah tells us, Behold, your king coming to you, righteous you see that? See how that descriptor there, that word righteous, that means, that means he is perfect goodness. That means there's no, there's no unfaithfulness in him. There's no darkness in him. There's no inconsistency with him. He is perfect righteousness, which means, church, you can trust him, which means you can lean on him, which means he's strong enough to never let you down and to save you. I was reading about this guy, this uh, author named Steve Winger. And uh, Steve was writing about the last test that he took in college. And uh, it was a, a test on logic. And he said the exam was really, really hard. And the professor uh, gave them an invitation to say, look, if you want to take an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and you can, you can put anything on that sheet of paper, fill it with as much information you, 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 know, you want to. You can have that with you during the exam. And you can use that kind of as you know, a resource for you to kind of help you pass the exam. So as you can imagine, everybody took their eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and they just filled it with information. But, but Steve was telling the story. He knew a guy in this class who had a friend who is a graduate student in logic. He was working on his PhD in logic. So you know what this friend did? He took an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, put it on the floor and invited his friend to stand right next to him 
on that sheet of paper. And that friend helped him all the way through that exam. And uh, he passed in flying colors. You know, when we stand before God one day, Jesus is going to, you know, God's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And what the gospel is, very simply, is you're not going to proclaim your righteousness. You're not going to proclaim your worthiness. You're going to need the help of someone else standing right next to you. And his name is Jesus. And so he is righteous in every way. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can yield your life to him. That's why he will never let you down. But there's another reason why you can trust him. And that is this, Jesus in the triumphal entry reveals himself to us as a victorious king. Let me show you Zechariah 9.9 again. Uh, Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, and notice this phrase, having salvation is he. You see that phrase, having salvation is he? Let me tell you about that phrase. That phrase is a little awkward in the Hebrew. So Zechariah is originally written in Hebrew. Translators kind of struggle with how to translate that phrase, having salvation is he. It's a little, you know, like I said, it's a little awkward. And, um, and so if you were to translate it literally, like word for word literally, it would say this from the Hebrew, um, you know, behold, your king's coming to you, righteous and saved is he. Saved past tense. That's interesting. And, and so you ask the question, how was Jesus saved? Like he didn't sin, so he didn't need to be saved from his sins. He had no sin. Zechariah tells us he was, he was righteous in every way, right? Uh, Jesus lived a sinless life. So how was Jesus saved? If you take the Hebrew literally, righteous and saved, how was Jesus saved? Well, the answer to that would come later after the cross on Easter. He was saved from death. Church, you know what the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions about the resurrection is? One of the biggest misconceptions about the resurrection is Jesus raised himself from the dead. And that's not true. God the Father raised him from the dead. God the Father saved him from death. And so Jesus' death on the cross on that Good Friday was the payment for sin. Easter Sunday, the resurrection is God the Father stamping it and saying, payment approved, paid in full. And the Father, through the power of the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. The, through the power of the Spirit, the Father saved Jesus from the grave. Now, the implication of this is huge. Because if God saved Jesus from the dead... Guess who else he can save from the dead? You and me. If God raised Jesus from the dead, guess who else he can raise from the dead? You and me as well. And so, so this is part of what's happening. This is part of what's being kind of revealed to us in the triumphal entry. Now, I get it. You know, the crowds didn't understand all of that. They didn't understand it all that day. They just thought Jesus was some political Messiah. But they would understand it later as they processed Scripture as they process the testimony. And then lastly, let me share this one. This is really cool. Jesus reveals himself as a gentle king. So he's a righteous, he's a victorious king. That's why you can trust him. 
but, but the way Jesus reveals himself, what comes through is he is a gentle king. Now, when you think about, especially in ancient times, you know, Alexander the Great and, you know, the pharaohs, man, when they, when they you know, all the, the mighty warriors throughout history, when they would conquer cities, they're not going to ride in on a donkey. They're going to ride in a conquered city on a horse in all of their wealth and all of their glory. You guys track me? I mean, you could probably imagine what that is looking at. They're going to they're gonna ride in a city leading a very powerful army, um, displaying the royal treasury right behind them. But the surprising thing is this righteous king, this victorious king, comes, comes in without pomp and circumstance, but he comes in with humility and meekness. Uh, let, me, let me show it to you again. Zechariah 9, 9, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, notice this, humble and mounted on a donkey. It's not even his donkey either. I mean, you talk about meekness. You, you talk about humility. That, that's, he, he's not riding in on some proud stallion here. He's coming in on a donkey. I love how Clarence McCartney, the great, great preacher, says it. He says it like this. How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities in which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero standing in in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, he says, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. What is he communicating? That he is a gentle, he is a gentle king. You know, by the way, I, as, you look around, as you look at Zechariah 9.9, 9, um, the language of the prophecy, again, that's unmistakable. N- notice how it's worded. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. He's using... He's using family language. He's, he's communicating that he relates to us as a loving father. So just as a good earthly father loves their sons and daughters, that's how God loves us. That's how God relates to us. So you see this gentleness coming through. Now, I think it would be a huge mistake to, to mistake gentleness for weakness. That would be a huge mistake. Because if you read the first eight verses of Zechariah 9, and then you read Zechariah 10 and the following verses, what you see is that God is going to destroy Jesus or Israel's ancient enemies, the Syrians and the Philistines. He's He's going to destroy them. So it would be a huge mistake to assume that because Jesus is this gentle king, he's weak. He's not weak at all. He is going to conquer his foes. And, uh, and so the picture that we get is of Jesus who is who's omnipotent in his power. He's he's all-powerful, but he's gentle at the same time. Can you think of any other king in the history of the world, in literature, uh, in mythology, in, in history, who displays that kind of leadership, all power, and yet gentle at the same time? You can't because there's not one. Jesus is the only one. And again, this is the uniqueness of who we are uh, as Christians. It's the, it's the uniqueness 
of our faith. So all of this is kind of going into what Jesus is revealing to the crowd that day. Now, what about the reaction of the crowd? I think the reaction of the crowd reveals who we really are. We see Jesus' action. He, he's revealing himself who he, for who he really is. He's the king, but, but the crowd's reaction reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our brokenness. Look, look with me at verse 11. I was really struck by this as I was studying this week. Uh, notice verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is very curious. We have just gone from a scene of kind of pandemonium and buzz. The crowd had been throwing their cloaks down. The crowd had been chanting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thousands and thousands of people lining the streets. The whole city is buzzing. We get to verse 11 and the buzz has completely fizzled out. Where did it go? All it tells us is Jesus went into the temple and he kind of looked around and then it was getting late and they decided to leave. Now how anticlimactic can you be? I mean, the, cla the clamoring crowds mysteriously vanish. What in the world is going on? Well, what Mark, uh, really what he's telling us is there were no street parties. There were no concerts. No more pomp and circumstance. There was, Jesus is going to the temple to receive the kingdom. That's the appropriate place to receive it. But there's no coronation. There's no coronation big lunch, you know what I mean? And uh, I don't think King Charles's coronation is going to end like this. But man, it just fizzles out. Why? Why did it fizzle out? Well, I, I think the answer really gives us an insight into human nature. I think it gives us an insight into, into me and into you. That the reality is when we are left to ourselves... We are all about ourselves. And I think what's happening here very easily is it reveals the condition of our hearts that we're so quick to turn away. We'll praise Jesus with one breath and turn away from him in the very next. And I think that's exactly what you have going on with the crowd. I, I think it reminds us that it's easy to sing songs. It's easy to say the phrase, praise the Lord. And to do it with a heart that's far from him. To do it with a heart that's not abiding in him. Our hearts are so wayward. Our hearts are so selfish. And this whole scene comes to nothing. Like it just completely fizzles out. It reminds me of the parable of the sower. Where the farmer sows the seed. And the soil receives it immediately. But it only lasts a short term. In fact, later on, that first Holy Week, the crowd will not be shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. You know what the crowd will be shouting? Crucify him. Crucify him. See, that's a picture of our hearts. That's a picture of what's in me. That's a picture of what is in you. We've turned our backs on it. We are people who are curved in on ourselves with our sin. 
We, we are a people in need of a savior. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he went to Jerusalem. He rides a donkey because he knows where it's gonna take him. It's gonna take him to the cross because he knows you and I need him to go there. He knows we need a fundamental heart change that only comes from the grace of God. The change deep within us so that our hearts are transformed so that we can be set free from our selfishness and our sin. And we can be changed to people who love him and who want to serve him every day. He, he goes to the cross because he loves us. Because he gives us not what we deserve, but what we need. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we are amazed by your grace. We see just a picture of who you are, your heart for us. And then we see the picture of our waywardness toward you. But I thank you that your grace is bigger than our sin. I thank you that your mercy is greater than our faults. That even when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to be a people, that we, that we would just serve you and follow you as our king, that we would invite you in to rule our hearts and our minds, to rule our lives, that we would trust your care, we would surrender to your control because that's where the joy is. So forgive us for where we've tried to take things in our own hands. Forgive us for how we try to save ourselves. Forgive us, God, for how we so quickly turn from you and do our own thing. Thank you, God, that your word says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. You are right in forgiving us of our sins because you paid for them on the cross. So I just want to give you a moment to respond just right in your seat, right where you are. I want to, I want to just kind of sit in this moment and, and just give you an opportunity to pray silently to yourself. The Spirit is just working in this place. And I want to give you, give you a chance to just yield yourself to Him, to make Him king of your heart today. If there's something you, you need to trust him with, if there's something you need to surrender to him, this would be a great opportunity to voice that to him now. So Heavenly Father, in full view, the mercies of God, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. 
God, thank you that what we offer up to you, you take it and you bless it. You transform it. You multiply it. And so we give ourselves to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.